0: got a lot to say about the world i occupy every day but when i say what's on my mind i find i piss people off you're listening to what the folk real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times i'm emily yates
1: And I'm Sarah Baranowskis.
0: On this episode of What the Folk, we're talking with Eleanor Goldfield, a journalist and artist in many media whose recent film, Hard Road of Hope, explores the radical history of West Virginia.
2: The term redneck, which is now like a totally derogatory term, was based on uh, mine workers, black, white, and immigrant mine workers tying on red bandanas around their neck and not only marching together but taking up arms and firing on coal barons during the mine wars in the early 1900s um that's not something they teach you in school
0: (laughs) and on that note Eleanor Goldfield is the founder and host of the show and podcast, Act Out, and the co-host of the podcast, Common Censored, along with Lee Camp. Her current work focuses on more long-form and in-depth pieces, the first iteration of these being a film on West Virginia's coal and fracking country. As a journalist, her articles and photographs cover people and topics which are censored or misrepresented. Artistically, Eleanor works in a variety of mediums, and her performances blend music, spoken word, and visual projections. The song you just heard behind us is by her band Rooftop Revolutionaries, and you can find her work at artkillingapathy.com. It's so good to talk with you, Eleanor. One of the things that we're just trying to do is have some of our favorite artists and activists and musicians and just all around doers of amazing shit come (laughs) come and and be on the on the pod so uh, welcome thank you
2: i'm glad that i made your list of doer of awesome shit
0: fuck yeah always before I uh, jump into asking really, really difficult questions, do you want to just let me know what how, how you've been doing? We've been, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic. How have you been coping?
2: Um, well, I have to say I, if it weren't for, like, the mutual aid work, I'd be talking to pillows. Um, I'm, like, a super introvert, Uh, and this pandemic has reaffirmed that as much of an introvert as I am, uh, I love individuals, hate people, love individuals. Um, And I, this is the longest that I've actually been in DC at a time. And that might sound weird because I've lived here since 2015, but I've traveled a lot because of my work is predominantly a frontline journalist. So when I realized that I was just gonna be here for a bit, um, I plugged into some of the folks that I knew from like the J20 protests and stuff like that. And uh, of course, there was already like a, a mutual aid network going, um, predominantly in the in the black and brown communities because as they as, as one of the organizers said, we've been doing this shit forever. Um, so I've, I've plugged into that and for the past like, Four months. Uh, That's really what I've been doing for the most part. Um, And then, you know, doing like little freelance stuff here and there and trying to promote the film. Um, But yeah, I mean, mutual aid in DC is is different. Mutual aid in this time is different because the mutual aid that I've done in the past, like, you know, post hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, it's like, it's that spot. And then when you go, when you fly back, it's like, Oh, everything's just normal here. Um, but now like the entire world is in the same, like fucked up situation. So it's a fascinating, like moment for solidarity and, uh, and also, you know, fear and frustration, but also a lot of hope. So it's been really like good and powerful doing uh, doing mutual aid here in DC. Um, so that's mostly what I've been doing, and I'm very I'm very glad that I have been.
0: Well, that's a really great segue into the first thing that I was going to ask you anyway, um, which is you know just about mutual aid and uh and what forms of that you've been working on and how it's been playing into your work as a journalist and an artist and uh you know um yes i've i've written a couple of
2: articles you know on the journalism tip i've written a couple of articles for mint press news about mutual aid and um and just kind of trying to make the distinction, like first and foremost, that mutual aid is uh, solidarity, not charity. And that's an important distinction to make because charity is hierarchical. Um, It requires an us versus them mentality, like, oh, these poor degenerates are the people that we're helping and therefore we're better than them. Uh, because we have the ability to help them. You know, it's parading poor people at a fundraiser in New York City uh, so that people can write checks for $10,000 and make themselves feel better. Um, mutual aid it means that the community is helping itself because we are the community. Uh, so I'm a member of the D.C. community, and I, too, am <laughs> a poor person that, like, that needs help, um, and I can help best by knowing and understanding the needs of the people that are on the same level as me. You know, I oftentimes say that like, you know, oppressed people might not be able to articulate it in the most academic terms, but they don't need to be told what oppression feels like. They know. And nobody knows better what a community needs better than the community itself. And so mutual aid is about making those connections because you are a member of that community. Um, And not so much trying to overthrow the government as making it obsolete because, uh, the government just obstructs or the very, at the very least, like doesn't help. Uh, and so mutual aid is really like a, uh, a framework in which to make the government obsolete and make it so that the people can take care of each other, uh, without interference from the, the government and the capitalist structures. So that's really, and, and mutual aid has existed in so many different iterations and so many different spaces throughout time. Uh, it's just something that it's just like what, like the phrase that we use uh, predominantly here in, in, in the US and Canada to talk about what we're doing. Um, but, you know, people have called it municipalism or mutualism or, you know, all kinds of, some people don't even call it anything. They're just like, this is what we do to survive.
0: <laughs> Being a- (laughs) good person. (laughs)
2: Uh, You know, and and like uh, even like in a place like Rojava or the Zapatistas, like they don't call it mutual aid. They just call it like self-determination and autonomy. Uh, So it's existed in a lot of different ways uh, and in particular in these marginalized communities, and in particular BIPOC uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. Um, So yeah, uh, mutual aid is the antidote and the answer. To the uh, to the capitalist structure
0: that is a really excellent way to sum it up
1: kind of related to mutual aid I like how you've articulated the really important connections between art and activism and art and sort of changing our general consciousness towards a more liberation mindset in terms of mutual aid um how do you see art supporting those projects and then this is Just kind of an idea I was playing with this morning. Art could actually be a form of mutual aid itself. Um, And I didn't know if maybe you had any thoughts about how what that might look like.
2: Sure, yeah. So, I like to say that art is not going to topple empires, but it'll inspire the people that do. <laughs> um, I think it's important that, like, when, when I talk about art and activism, some people are like, well, art's not going to fix everything. And I'm like, nothing's going to fix everything. <laughs> we, don't, we don't live in that kind of world. Like, oh, I got it, this one thing going <laughs> to fix everything. Like, that's just... Um, but art is art is important on on many different levels, uh, and not least of all because it makes us think creatively, which is the you know, which is really scary to the powers that be, right? Because if you think creatively, all of a sudden you start looking around and you're like, why the fuck is this necessary? Like, why do there have to be homeless people? Why do we have to be at war? Like, it makes you question the framework that you're programmed in uh, into when you grow up, particularly in this country. But I'd say, you know, globally uh, in the, you know, the the industrialized world, so to speak, Um and in terms of, you know, art as mutual aid, I think that art is also a way of storytelling. It's a way of sharing the, the experiences of the community so that the community can speak for itself. And I, and I oftentimes, like, also point out that there's no such thing as a voiceless person you know, people will talk about like, oh, we have to amplify the voiceless. It's like nobody's fucking voiceless. They've just been silenced. There's a difference. (laughs) Um, And art in a a variety of mediums allow people to tell their stories, you know, whether that be through visual art, whether that be through poetry or, you know, filmmaking or something like that. It allows people to share their experiences and allows the community to speak for itself, uh, particularly in a way that will engage people that are far removed, either geographically or in other ways, from the affected people. Um, you know, for instance, like we wouldn't really know about what happened after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans if it weren't for Lower Ninth Ward residents and their allies who came together and shared those stories through, like, either alternative media or through, uh, th- through you know, little like poetic snippets and uh, and things like that, and art, of course. Um, so I think you know, art as mutual aid is a very powerful. Uh, is, a, is a very powerful tool and tactic. And of course, part of this is also self care. And by that, I don't mean like the shit, you know, oh, I bought a face mask at Sephora. Like, <laughs> that's not real. Self-care. Sure, that's nice. I enjoy it. I, I mean, if somebody wants to buy me a bottle of face mask <laughs> I'm so down. Who but doesn't like, that's no. a good
0: face mask. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, um, wait, a lot of people, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, that's not like the deeper self-care, right? Deeper self-care is a lot more, like, labor-intensive. Um, and it takes a lot of, uh, it, it takes community in a different way, uh, whether that be community, like, with one person, like a loved one, or, like, actual community with the people that live around you. Um, and art is a great way to facilitate that. Uh, it's a great way to bring people together because art is very soothing. You know, there's there's a reason that they uh, that they prescribe, you know, music and things like that for people with ptsd or painting and things like that because it is very soothing and it allows people in their own time to work through whatever the fuck it is um, and put that out there and share that with somebody you know maybe like in a collaborative way so i think um, you know in those two senses like art as salve and art as like storytelling and mutual aid is super powerful and then of course just like the idea that Try and think of a movement or a moment in history where shit got, you know, where where thrones were toppled and there wasn't, an like, an artistic element. There always has been. Uh, art is the voice uh, of a revolution. It's the cultural stamp of a place and time and the people living through it. Uh, and it is, like, the, the, the manifold, the legion of stories that exist outside, like, the one perfectly whitewashed history that, that we're taught. So in those ways, I mean, art is is uh, art is vital.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're touching on really really important pieces there, especially around, you know, creativity. It's creativity and communication um together and uh, there's actually you know, there's nothing more healing to people and more threatening to power than Uh, creativity and communication and speaking of that and storytelling your recent project your film that has recently come out and been making their rounds I knew you were working on this project but tell me how you came to decide that this was a story that you wanted to tell and some of your process in deciding how to tell it
2: yeah, so um, it was an orig- it was originally a plan that, uh, that a friend of mine, um, me and a friend of mine, decided that we were going to go to West Virginia to. At first, I thought I was just going to get some you know some interesting footage and, and a report for my weekly show, and uh, I was going kind of. Along with uh, with my friend uh, Jen Deeringwater, who's a an Indigenous Cherokee journalist, that's her ancestral home. Like originally, Cherokee lands uh, spanned you know several what are now states, including uh, parts of of southern West Virginia. And so, I wanted to go to support uh, and also you know see what I could dig up on my own. And when I, when once we got there, I realized, shit, there are way more stories uh, that need to be shared than I can fit into a weekly show. And part of that was really because so much of what we know about West Virginia is like this, like the butt end of jokes. Like I partially grew up in North Carolina and West Virginia was just like the butt end of jokes there. And if you're the butt end of jokes in North Carolina, something has gone awry. Um... <laughs> And so I, I I when I before I went, I was like, okay, I'm either gonna find out that West Virginia is this bad, or it's going to be like a total 180. Um and pretty soon after I got there, I realized that it is like a total 180. Uh there's so much like radical history and so many radical people doing radical things. And then on top of that, West Virginia is fucking beautiful. Um, it is mind bogglingly gorgeous. And I just assumed that it was like, you know, just a bunch of like coal slurry ponds and shit, um, which there's that too, but there's still so much gorgeous nature. And so basically what I realized is that I wanted to not tell these stories. And I like, I, the reason I say that is I think the distinction is important. Some documentaries want to tell stories. Others want to amplify other storytellers, And this is not my story to tell. I don't, I'm not from West Virginia. I have no right to tell that story. Uh, So for me, it was really important that they speak for themselves. um, And I wanted to, to help amplify that. And so what became clear is that I, like, Pretty much the, the most important part of this was not only to dispel the notion that West Virginia is just a bunch of like idiot hillbillies who who don't understand climate change and don't understand progress. Um, to flip that on its head and to also show that West Virginia is like a mirror to the rest of the country. Uh, because so many parts of this country have been destroyed by corporate malfeasance. So many parts of this country are peopled by, uh, you know, folks who have been discarded and cast aside by industry and by government. Um, and so if we're going to, to say that West Virginia is a throwaway because of that, it's like, where else would you, what, what, what would be left? Um, so it was really important to me to, to, to amplify those stories. And, uh, that's why it, it went from, oh, I'll just do a report on this to like, I guess I'm a filmmaker now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm kind of curious to hear, um, you know, I think that's really important distinguishing between telling a story and amplifying, um, other storytellers. How, what kind of process is it to build up trust in those relationships where people feel like they trust you with that story?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and usually it, like it takes longer. Um, but one of the things I noticed is that because I was, I was coming in, uh, with basically like kind of knowing how to speak to people because of, because of growing up around other poor Southern white folks. Um, and here's another important distinction. People are like, Oh, so you had to dumb yourself down. And I was like, if you had to speak French, would you say, I'm dumbing myself down to speak French? No, you'd be like, I'm, be, I'm fucking using different words. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm using a different like cadence and everything. Um, people in different parts speak differently. I mean, I, to this day, have a hard time uh, understanding some of the folks in like the deep bayous of Louisiana. That's on me, because I'm the one coming to their home and being like, I'm sorry, i, I, I Uh, Or like in Liverpool, when I was there a few years ago, fucking could not understand. I just had to, I mean, I am Swedish, but I just had to pretend that I didn't speak English several times because I was like, (laughs) I legit don't understand you. But no one would say, oh, you have to dumb yourself down in order to understand them. Um, So I think it's just like important that you know how to speak to people. Uh, And I, the other thing is that um, these places and particularly poor white communities are, so used to either hearing from white supremacists that they are, you know, God's chosen ones or whatever, or they're used to getting yelled at by the left that they're assholes because they work in coal mines, that they're assholes um, because they're poor and white, basically. Um, And that's not how you can speak to folks because unfortunately, you know, all of the problems that we are experiencing today in this country require the participation of poor white folks, not all of them, but poor white folks, uh, in order to to unfuck it, Mm uh, and to throw them away because they don't, they aren't, they aren't smart enough or because they've been propagandized. Um, it's, it's not a way to organize. Uh, you got to go out and sit with them on their porch and have a beer, um, and, and listen to them, um, and talk about like how they view things. Uh, and I think that's a way of building trust, even if you don't have a lot of time. Uh, but obviously like over the course, I have, you know, I've stayed in touch with the people in the film and it's important to me that, that they feel that I did right by them. Um, and I, so I think like it's it's just a matter of uh, of of like respecting people and respecting their experiences, and trying to even if you come in with like a preconceived notion about people, you try to leave that shit at the door. And of course, for me, it also helped that I was with uh, with a community member, so we had connected with uh, the 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 guy one of the guys that's in the movie, Paul Corbett Brown, who's the head of. Keepers of the Mountain, uh, we had connected with with him ahead of time. So he reached out to his folks and said, hey, these people are cool, Um, which I find is really necessary. I've found that to be necessary in pretty much all of the frontline communities that I've gone to, because they are, for a good reason, um, very wary of the press, um, and they're wary of people who want to take their stories and twist them for their own means. Uh, so, so yeah, that, it definitely helped to have like somebody that I got like the stamp of approval from the dude in the community.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's, um, I'm really glad that you were able to, to go in and do that because I think you're right when you say that there's, these stories are, are being silenced because we are taking, uh, taking seriously this idea that there's some sort of, like, stupider part of the country or that poor white people must be uneducated or must be ignorant. And I, I actually, the, the, the thing that resonates with me uh, the most that you said is it's, it's not just about knowing how to talk to people. That is, I think, but I think that is it's important to distinguish between, like, it is actually another dialect uh, another language that you're learning, but also to listen to people, because I know for me, I like to talk, I like wordsing, you know, and it's, it's hard to, it's hard to stop for a minute and let somebody else do it. And especially if I already think I know what they're going to say, it's um, tempting to just be like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But um, the listening, I think is, is a practice that I know I need to get better at, and as one of the things that is going to allow us in these, you know, times that are where, you know, the fascists are snatching people off the street, it's going to allow us to see, you know, community and support in one another, and, you know, if we can listen to each other, then we can help each other. So when in the, in the making of that film, you know, in addition to, you know, having some of your preconceptions shattered, uh, regarding like what people are like in West Virginia. Was there anything else, um, surprising that you discovered or things that you hope will, uh, be surprising and enlightening to others?
2: I think probably the, the most surprising thing is the history. Um, and I'm a history nerd I'm also the daughter of a history nerd. My father's a historian and um, writes a lot about, in particular, like the period of the Civil War up until the Civil Rights Movement. Um, and has been like, you know, he oftentimes gets questioned about like the statues and shit and, uh, you know, reminds people that, hey, those statues were put up long after the Civil War as monuments to white supremacy. Um, so as someone, But it kind of, like, in defiance, I guess it was my rebellion as a child. I was like, I only care about European history. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, So I didn't really get into American history that much. And I think part of the problem is that it's fucking boring when it's taught here. I think one of the reasons that I liked European history is that when I went to school in Sweden, it was like, well, first of all, there's a lot of, like, you know, royals, fucking royals. And like, there's, I mean, there's a lot of like crazy shit going on, but there's also, uh, I got to, you know, I I was privileged enough to learn more of like the people's history. And I think there's a lot of it because of like the various revolutions that have taken place over the course of like hundreds of years, as opposed to the U S it's like one revolution and then everything was perfect. Um, and so I think I was just kind of bored by U S history, until it was taught to me by people who like remember it, uh, and that like that it was passed down, you know. I mean, when, in such a young country, one of the things that the U.S. really could have going for it is that we have people alive that remember like really far back into this young history, um, either personally or because it's something that's been handed down. Um, and this is something that is very much alive in West Virginia, and I think you know, folks might. Feel this uh, personally as well. It's something that's very much alive in a lot of poor communities, um, because this is your connection to your home, to your people, to whatever. It's also like your entertainment, you know. Like, like mom's just going to tell us a story now. Like this is this is much more of a vibrant part of uh, of a lot of poor communities, regardless of race. Uh, from what I've found. Um, And so what I really found fascinating and really important to highlight was this radical history of West Virginia that's been so silenced and so buried uh, for good reason. You know, for instance, uh, just like as an example, the term redneck, which is now like a totally derogatory term, was based on uh, mine workers, black, white and immigrant mine workers tying on red bandanas around their neck and not only marching together, but taking up arms and firing on coal barons during the mine wars in the early 1900s. That's not something they teach you in school. (laughs) They're not like, hey, you know how, like, the South is really racist? Um, Well, back, like, way before Jim Crow was over, uh, black folks and white folks marched together and shot at some rich white folks and um, won some rights. Like, no one tells you that.
0: (laughs) There's no Jeff Foxworthy joke that's like, if your black friends and your white friends and your immigrant friends got together and shot up some fucking coal barons, you might be a redneck. Right?
2: (laughs) That's how that joke should go. Right. Um, We should,
0: we should holler at Jeff.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At Jeff Foxworthy. Um, So yeah, that, like that history. uh, And I was speaking, you know, one of the, one of the people in the film, Wilma Steele, who, um, who works at the Mine Wars Museum said that she grew up in Matewan which is you know the Matewan massacre during you know the you know like around the, the same time of the Mine Wars the battle for Belair Mountain and she said she and Maitwan is fucking tiny. Well, most places in West Virginia are tiny, but Maitwan, it's like it looks like the back lot. Like you drive in and like there's like these one-story buildings on like the main street, and it's it's fucking adorable. There's like the little railroad going through town. It's 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 a black it's a backlot. But she grew up in this tiny little town and she said she'd never heard about the Maitwan massacre. Like, can you imagine like living in your own home? Where you grew up, that you consider to be like your place, and you don't know like the recent history. I mean, the early 1900s is not that long ago. Um, so, so it was really, it was really shocking to me to find out about all of this history that I too didn't know, um, and that w- that really speaks to the propagandization that has turned West Virginia from a progressive state. Uh, uh, filled with radicals uh, shooting at coal barons into the butt end of jokes uh, and into this, this place with Trump flags flying and, uh, you know, a deep uh, resentment for the progressive left. Uh, so that was very, that was very shocking and uh, very, uh, very informative for me.
1: That kind of, um, one of the themes that seems to be coming up for us on this pod is this sort of idea that America is a very ahistorical consciousness, like we don't have a great sense for our own history. A lot of that's obviously by design, Um, although now we live in an age where, you know, you can find every piece of information you want, but that's not going to do you much good if you don't know how to engage with that information. Um, What are some strategies or ideas you might have about sort of how we resist that sort of erasure of our own history and how we reclaim it for ourselves?
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a tricky question. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of tactics and I guess, you know, part of it is, um, part of it depends on like what you're after, of course, because just like this nation is so vast and really a lot of nations in one Hmm. um, or not even in one. Uh, in one shithole country, there are many nations, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> many, many experiences. Uh, you know, there is no like American experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like we pretend that there is on 4th of July, but there really isn't. Um, the realities of people living in, you know, the Pacific Northwest are vastly different from the people living in North Carolina, West Virginia, New York, uh, Colorado. You know, these these are different stories and different histories. I think that you know a good place to start is to look to to, to try and find out people that aren't the, you know, the the typical canon of historians to, 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 to read, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking of right now is the indigenous people's history of the United States. Um, and because it tells you the story that completely blasts out of the water, oh, people with buckles on their heads, um, and people with feathers in their hair uh, got together and shared corn. Like, no, that's not what happened. Um, and it's important that we completely like unfurl that uh, that flag draped lie um, and uh, and really and really understand the ramifications of those lies. Uh, because, of course, just like you know, when somebody says race is a construct, we shouldn't even talk about it. Well, sure, race is a construct. So is our, our modern understanding of gender. But entire systems have been built on. On these constructs and in order to dismantle them we have to understand those those constructs so we have to understand the foundation of this country as one of genocide and uh, slavery in order to understand what we're doing right now you know i, I think of history as like the road map um and it's like if you just all of a sudden woke up like born identity style and you were like where the fuck am i and then you had a map and you're like oh i see but if you don't have the map, you're like, I don't fuck, I have no idea where I am or where I'm going, like which direction am I pointed in? So the, that map, that history gives you context for your place in time. Um, and so I think that, you know, you're right. Like just looking on the internet, it's like, well, you're going to find people that say it was the lizard people and aliens built the pyramids. And then you're right. also going <laughs> to find like, the legitimate shit. And how do you, for someone who has been, you know, cast into our public school system, how the hell do you make heads or tails of it? Um, and I think that's why it's also really important to have like these community, uh, this community guidance uh, and have this sort of personalized storytelling so that you can look at something and say, hey, this matches up with what Miss Thomas over there was talking about with, you know, public housing being defunded and, you know, her mother struggling with, with racism in the workplace and da, 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 da it's like, well then I can read this Bill O'Reilly shit and be like, mm, you know what? I don't think that that's true. Um, <clears throat> and so I think it really comes from like community uh, community spaces that uh, that really speak to the, those like manifold uh, experiences and stories that have not been shared in our history books. Um, and of, of course, a lot of this has to do with organizing with youth, but also uh, you know there are tons of adults who don't, don't know, uh, don't know the, the truth of our history. So I really think, you know, for them, it's a matter of finding out these, these people who are writing from those silenced perspectives, be they indigenous uh, you know, black people of color um, you know, femmes, LGBTQ, what have you.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is um, that aspect of reviving stories and storytelling and using them not just as entertainment, but as reference points, I think, is something that, you know, even just our parents' generation used to experience a lot more. You know, I, I grew up um, hearing stories from my dad and my grandparents, and, you know, and they grew up hearing them even more because they didn't have a TV. <laughs> and... Um, and As a result, I've had some important, you know, reference points for my life going back, like, oh, this is how life was during the Depression, or this is how life was for Italian immigrants, or this is how life was for Jewish immigrants, because those are the people I come from. And so because of even just minimal stories, because we didn't have, like, storytelling culture particularly, like you're talking about, like we need to be building or rebuilding or... Or looking to um, our indigenous friends to see how they have have you know carried on storytelling throughout the generations. We're so um, constantly being set in conflict, generational conflict, intergenerational conflict that we don't see uh, our you know future and past generations as being able to be useful to each other. But you do amazing art and work that helps assist with that. And I want to um, ask you about some of the other projects that you have done and are doing with the, the podcast and um, your spoken word. And I'm not sure if you're back into music more these days, but I'm just I would love to know more about how you're choosing where to put your focus these days and what is uh is fueling uh all of those art passions yeah i mean
2: unfortunately since the pandemic hit and you know uh we uh, emily and i had a show scheduled i think i think like i i still have a very conflicted relationship with music <laughs> um And part of this is because I moved to L.A. when I was 18 to become a rock star. That went so-so. I, uh, I, it wasn't, I mean, I was very good at the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was just a matter (laughs) of, like, making it my career that was problematic. Um, and I think part of that was because I couldn't, uh, you know, unfortunately in Hollywood, women are constantly asked or they're demanded to choose between, uh, you know, our morals and our dreams. And I finally chose my morals. Um, so I had to bury my dreams in a very shallow grave <laughs> where they periodically pop up like zombies. Um, and so uh, I still struggle with, uh, with like, the death of my band. Um, and so doing, doing music on my own is like a... Uh, as a solo act is weird. Um, it feels it feels very lonely on stage. I'll say that I'm used to having like a full band, and you feel the push of the, you feel like the rumble of the stage, and you feel the the air being pushed by the drums. And it like then all of a sudden by yourself on the stage, you're like, wait, if I fuck up, I can't blame it on the bass player. <laughs> um, so the world I world of a folk singer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I I have. I think after that, that show got canceled, I just kind of, like, pushed the music away a little bit, also because I was supposed to release an EP, uh, mm-hmm. which was then tabled, because I was thinking, oh, well, in a few months, we can all go back to doing shows again, and then I'll release it, and here I am, realizing that's not true. Um, so I think, like, the music is, for me, a little bit on hold right now, just because I'm and dealing with that like those conflicted emotions and uh, and i'm hoping that like i can i, I, I feel like it, it's important to me not to try and force it because then i'll just start resenting it <laughs> so i mean i can feel my guitar staring at me right now i feel like she's <laughs> talking about her and i feel like she's very upset <laughs> um so i'd say like most of my most of my energy has been focused on um, and sort of creative writing, both in terms of the, the articles that I've put out, um, and Mint Press has been very uh, gracious in accepting what other outlets deemed, uh, like, creative writing that was too full of metaphors. <laughs> um, and I love the metaphor.
0: Uh, I, yeah, we all should value a good metaphor. I think if, if the Lord of the Rings taught us nothing, it's to value a good metaphor. I'm just like <laughs> wrapping my
1: head around that as a point of criticism. Too many metaphors. Right? But yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, yeah.
2: There's, I mean, in the journalism community, there's a lot of people that feel that they have to sound like CNN in order to mm, get... Yeah respect, which on one hand I get, but on the other hand, I'm like, that's very middle school. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't have to wear the Abercrombie and Fitch shirt anymore, guys. Like we can, <laughs> we can move beyond it. Um, right <laughs> For people under a third, you're not going to get that reference, but it's cool. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I think like most of my focus has been on the the creative writing and the, the, the spoken word. Um, and also Going out and um, and trying to document like what's been going on in the streets here in DC, uh, and uh, yeah, so that's been predominant. And then doing like you know little art builds for um, for actions and, and and things like that. But that's that's mostly been my my artistic focus. And then of course there is like the you know the the, the podcast that I do with Lee, and uh, I do, I do my own podcast, the Act Out Podcast, where I step into what I call the nerdery um and uh muse on some philosophical questions um so I've been doing that as well um so yeah that's been like that's been my my main artistic focus for the you know for the past you know end of days
1: the past and future end of days yeah (laughs) um why even make a distinction
0: anymore <laughs>
1: so, so I think one thing that's kind of interesting and some it's kind of been my own experience with the pandemic is it's sort of making me reevaluate what I actually value in my life and what I want to do with my life um but sort of would you have any advice or sort of guidance to people that might be finding their artistic voice right now in the midst of this pandemic or feeling inspired by what's happening in the streets, you know, the protest for racial justice and want to be able to support that with their creativity. Because I think a lot of times people are taught to feel like art is a luxury and not a necessity. So any any thoughts there?
2: No, that's a great point. I think um, a lot of people, because we're programmed to think like good capitalists, uh, a lot of people are programmed to think that art is something that rich people can do and buy and enjoy. Um, and I'll say like, most of my art is free. <laughs> so, uh, you know, art is like, again, like art is the people's voice and it should be accessible to people. I, I'll say this, like I, w- something I used to do when I when I lived in LA is I would, I would, I would borrow a car and I would drive out to Joshua Tree And I would, you know, pitch a tent and I would basically like stay there until I missed something. Uh, And sometimes that could be a night, sometimes that was like a few days, but basically like whatever the first thing I missed was, that's what like I needed to keep doing. And inevitably, um, not to sound like a dick, it was never like a person that I was dating, (laughs) Um, but it was like my music or my, uh, my writing uh, my, my activism as it pertained to both of those things. And that made me feel like I was, I was where I needed to be. Um, and when I stopped feeling that that's when I started to make like plans to leave LA. Um, so I, obviously people are like, well, I can't fucking wait. No one can go anywhere right now. Like I totally get that. (laughs) But like, I think one of the things I did was I didn't take, like, I, I had my phone with me in case of emergencies, but I didn't turn it on. Uh, And back then there wasn't really like Instagram and stuff anyway, but there was always a distraction. Um, I only took a notepad with me. I didn't take any books. Um, And the reason for this is just because I wanted to like have just my thoughts and not have them bombarded with anything except for like the night sky. I know that sounds cliche, but like legit nature heals um so even if it's just like a walk like if you live in you know new york or something like just find like a green space or something um and just go there without your phone i know it sounds terrifying to walk outside your house without (laughs) your phone but there was a great post i can't remember who it was by uh, but it was like some radical uh collective that basically said that like instagram kills your imagination and i think like of course, that's not always the case. You know, you can get a lot of good ideas by what people... I mean, I got that idea from Instagram. <laughs> so, <The laughs> but, um, <laughs> I think, like, overarchingly, we do, like, allow... You know, you only have so much so much uh, energy in the in the tank, so to speak, and if some of that energy is spent scrolling through Instagram and being bombarded with all of the sensory information, um, it's going to affect your ability to create or even to appreciate other things, you know, like how boring is a tree compared to the endless stream of information on Instagram? Um, so I think, like, for, for folks who are feeling like, am I doing the right thing? Should I change gears? Should I like, how can I better like be a part of my community go away from things for like, even just like an afternoon. Um, and I think like for some people, this might be like meditation for some folks, this might be like a walk in a park or if you have access to, to bigger outdoor spaces, um, I think, like, honestly, like, I think for me, that's been one of the most, like, guiding lights in my life is the ability to not be influenced by the opinions that are constantly shat out of the digital space. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think particularly in these times when everything is taking place on the digital platform, it's important to step away from that and reconnect to your own humanity and your own... Your own voice. Um, and so that's, that's personally what, what I would recommend and what's, what's always worked for me. Mm.
0: Yeah. I can so relate to that too. <laughs> As you know, I've been spending the last several weeks kind of flitting in and out of nature and also high conflict situations <laughs> <laughs> um, because they're both important. <laughs> and uh, it's, I think the thought that came to my mind as you were uh, as you were talking about getting away, which I I really agree is so important, just to be able to step outside of the algorithm for a minute and uh, and you know look at the sky and let your brain reset, which is something that you know we all have access to doing. Most, even in a city, you know, we have the ability to just like look away from a screen for a while and just let our eyes unfocus and our bodies sort of un un tense and our jaws unhinge a little bit and <laughs> just kind of, um, you know, remember that we're like living, breathing organisms that aren't built to sit in the same position all day. It's also, I think, important to pay attention right now to the fact that a lot of people, even though they can maybe do that, can't ever unplug from the oppression machine, Um, just either through, um, you know, being really strapped for money, as many, many, many people are right now, um, or not having a home, or just or not knowing where your next meal is coming from like all these things I feel are like our other forms of of input that we you know I think we're all going to be experiencing more and more as time goes on and we're going to need to get better at finding ways to get away without being able to physically get away sometimes because you know as I I was telling Sarah before uh, you jumped on the call I've been spending a lot of time in nature recently, partly because I'm not sure what's going to happen over the next year. And I'm not sure how far the authoritarian arm is going to to reach. But I think now is the time to really be valuing our open spaces and our abilities to get away and unwind and let the night sky sort of rearrange our brains in that awesome way that it does
2: (laughs) yeah and I think like I think you make a very good point um I was speaking to a a good friend of mine yesterday and he said that there's no there's no apolitical space for a black man Mm -hmm. and I mean I would say on a totally different level. There's no apolitical space for anyone. Uh You know, uh we're all political beings um, that exist in this system. Whether we like it or not, we're political. And if you're not paying attention, then you are allowing yourself to be a passive political tool for the state. So I think that that's, you know, that's super important. And I think this is why, like, the mutual aid conversation is so important because not everybody has as easy of a time to like of stepping away of, of switching off, and so I think like mutual aid is a vital part of that. Not that mutual aid can like you know set everybody up like uh, a Kardashian, but mutual aid can take care of people's basic needs. Um, we have the resources. It's it's a matter of facilitating them, of stealing them back from the people who stole them from us. Um, and I think that that is that is such a powerful way of, like, explaining why, another reason why mutual aid is so important, because it allows people to actually live, um, and not just barely scrape by and become, like, a shell of a human because you're so stressed about, you know, the, the sexism, the racism, the, the poverty, the, the what have you. Um, so I think that that, that definitely, uh, that definitely is, like, an important point to, to highlight.
1: Yeah, definitely. And that kind of brings the conversation nicely full circle. But I want to make sure we leave space for any parting thoughts. And then something I like hearing from everybody we've had on is just kind of what gives you hope right now, whether it's one thing that you're working on, one thing that you're seeing, what is maybe some hope that you can impart to people, because I feel like that's an important thing to keep us going during these crazy apocalyptic times is, you know, trying to keep a somewhat of a hopeful mindset. So.
2: Totally. Um, Well, I mean, my film is called Hard Road of Hope, so. (laughs) Uh, We're trying to get you to say it out loud. (laughs) You you took
1: the bait. Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. We won a
2: prize. (laughs) Um, But, like, you know, I think that really speaks a lot to it. I think, you know, sometimes, uh, people will conflate optimism with hope. Optimism is easy because it's just like, everything's gonna be fine. Mm -hmm. Hope is understanding that it might not, it may even probably not be fine, but hope is that sliver of opportunity that it could be, um, if these other things, um, and those other things, that's what gives me hope. And I think like, you know, something that, people will sometimes ask me, is it like, oh my gosh, it sounds so stressful to be an activist. I'm like, it sounds so stressful not to be. Um, (laughs) Because either you're living in a cocoon of like a narrowed perspective um, where you only see what's fed to you by the state, which is creepy and very matrix, or you're not engaging with like the only thing that would make you feel better if you know the fucked up shit that's going on. So, like, activism is that hope. It is seeing people doing the things that are beautiful about humanity. Like, I, you know, I've seen some shit that I wish I hadn't, but almost inevitably, like, in those same spaces and times, I have seen what humans are capable of in the most beautiful way. Just to, to speak of, of something that happened, happened recently, you know, these these uprisings in DC. Uh, a tear gas canister would barely hit the ground before you had people with water bottles running around, and being like, "You need? Can we flush your eyes? Do you know, what, drink some water." Um, people holding each other's like arms in, in a line and making sure that like we got each other. Uh, people I'd never met before behind me, being like, "I got you, I got you," uh, as I like stagger backwards. This is this is what the state is so afraid of, and what they will never understand is that people, even in the most horrific situations, sometimes because of the most horrific situations, find ways to survive and find ways to be beautiful. And I don't mean like beautiful, like, (laughs) I mean beautiful, Mm -hmm. like human, like deep Mm -hmm. beauty. Um, And so that has always given me hope. And that's why I do what I do, because I think that if it weren't for the beauty that I'd seen people doing in the worst situations, I would have quit a long time ago uh, because I wouldn't have hope. So I think like if people are, are searching for hope, look no further than like, you know, the moms uh, blocking uh, shit in Portland. Um, you know, like uh, one of the, one of my favorite orgs, Raging Grannies, like the grandmoms who sit there with like their knitting and tie themselves to fracking equipment. It's fucking beautiful. Um, you know, I think that like, that is where you look for hope. It's for the people, it's, it's to the people who are doing this, this beautiful work of not just fighting, but building. Um, because part of the fight is building the alternative. Uh, you know, it's it's not just about being anti, it's being for something. And that, that something uh, are these manifold worlds that we can create in the ashes of a capitalism that is killing us, literally and figuratively. So that's what gives me hope constantly. Um, and I think that that's a good place to look.
0: Mm. Yeah. I totally feel that and it's a conversation I've been having with myself a lot lately about what is activism and what is you know it it seems like especially a lot of people I know now who have maybe been a little bit less vocal or engaged over the years are now starting to get engaged and activist is a much more commonly used word uh in the in the mainstream I think it's important to Pay attention to the fact that being an activist is not something that we um, that we can choose to do or not do. It's really how we are going to sustain ourselves. You know, mutual aid right now is you know like like you touched on. It's this sort of buzzword right now, but it's gone by so many other names over the years. And it's and it's a method of survival. And I think that, yeah, the reason why being aware of all of these atrocities and working in whichever small or large ways we can to work against them, it does, I mean, it gives me hope too, because it's it's a thing, it's an action, it's, it's um, that we can be living all the time and not succumbing to this sort of like you were saying like being a passive pawn of a pull polit- in a political game because it is is we're either active or we're passive and i would r- rather be an activist than a pacifist Uh, pacifist maybe but not a pacifist (laughs) Uh, so thanks for for bringing it back to that you know being part of the solution totally gives me a lot of hope too
2: thank you yeah what i mean what you all are doing is is so important too because like sharing these ideas and sharing these conversations is is how you, you plant seeds and water them.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then they grow into lovely little revolution flowers. Uh, well, if there's anything else you want to add before we wrap up, please do. Um, I know we've kind of talked about a lot of stuff, but.
2: I'd say like for, you know, for anybody that wants to, to, to see more about what I do, uh, including the film. The film is up at hardroadofhope.com. Um, it's available on a, on a sliding scale. And uh, more of my projects are up at artkillingapathy.com. And, you know, please feel free to reach out if you have, like, questions or ideas or just want to chat. I'm down. Oh, and I would recommend everybody uh, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, I want to say, .org. If you just, like, duck, duck, go Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, you'll find it. But they have a great list of a lot of local mutual aid networks. Um, so if Mm. you're looking to plug in in your area, uh, they might have that listing there, or if you reach out to them, they might know someone personally there, so I definitely recommend plugging in, particularly in places that are prone to hurricanes, because unfortunately, weather don't give a damn about COVID, so I have a feeling that uh, shit's about to get even worse on the climate change front, Uh, Mm. so we're going to need a lot of Uh, a lot of support there as well so please do plug into a mutual aid group near you
0: we will put that up in the show notes and that actually since you did since you mentioned you know i think was it the last time i saw you when we made the zombie music video where uh, we we had a whole conversation about metaphorical zombies and how you know all these things were gonna come up and the real thing is climate change and that's what's that's gonna be the what's gonna make zombies out of all of us starving desperate and uh, and poor but um, but hope. Is uh, mutual aid, so we don't have to eat each other. We can feed each other instead. <laughs> I love that. I want to bump sticker quicker
2: so. Yeah, that. feed you each know, other, don't,
0: don't eat each other. So. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we can. Uh, maybe maybe we can vision one. <laughs> and uh, how how uh, what are your your social media handles for people to find you? Uh, it's at activist Eleanor on Twitter and on Instagram.
2: Fantastic! Awesome. Well, thank yeah, you so much. Zombies. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. This was fun, y'all. Yeah.
0: Yay. Thank you so much for taking the time. And yeah, um, I'm, we'd love to stay updated on all the things. So I know you and I will be in touch, but let's, I hope we can have you on again in the future sometime. Yeah, for sure. And I hope to see you in person sometime. Soon. <laughs> yes. Virtual social distance hugs till then. We'll do our show together one of these days. I know we've done this entire
1: show not in person at all, and uh, even yeah. like the initial conversations about hey, want to start a podcast, all happens over Facebook Messenger. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm I'm starting another podcast, and uh, she's in Vancouver, and I'm here, and we're yeah. like, eh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. okay.
0: here we go well virtual hugs all around
2: yes it was great to to connect with you as well sarah
1: yeah yeah it was so awesome to meet you so
2: well stay safe and healthy y'all all All right right. you too bye
0: It's been nine years since Occupy, which is insane to me.
1: Yeah, that is insane. Gosh. A whole
0: lot of of things have happened since then. A whole lot of things have happened, but also a whole lot of things haven't happened, which is exactly what we've been trying to point at.
1: Right. And those things will continue to not happen. I mean, that's really... I mean, this is, I've just emotionally deadened myself to electoral politics, at least on the national level. I think there's a lot of value on the state level. I really, at this point, find it kind of sad when people are really hyped up about the presidential election at this point. It's like, Mm -hmm. if you think anyone is going to get in there, that's a threat to power. I mean, they wouldn't even let us have fucking Bernie. Bernie is, like, the most mild, like... He's not talking about overthrowing capitalism. He's talking about making things, like, slightly better Right, for he's people. talking about
0: slightly more humane capitalism. And even
1: that was, like, too much. Shut it down. Like, so anyone right. who yeah, has any hopes pegged on the election... I mean, I can take a bunch of moral arguments for why you would vote a certain way, and that's fine. People can vote, you know, for Biden. They can vote for Howie Hawkins.
0: Um, people are getting so close... To seeing what the cause of this problem is, and still not seeing it. And I guess you know walking up on a, on a car accident where you see the car driving away and the person lying there saying, "I've just been hit by a car. and you're just like, "You know what we need is better cars on the road. Pretty much. It, it does it addresses absolutely none of the problem. And the person is still sitting there injured. (laughs)
1: Or like, we just, if only you had been hit by a Hyundai instead of a Ford. Yeah.
0: It's like, oh, it's like, it's all these red cars on the road hitting people. No, it's not the red car. It's a car. And it hits people because that's what they do. If we
1: can't imagine a better world than the one that exists solely to create profits like we're fucked like there's no way out we have humanity
0: has collectively done enough psychedelic drugs to where (laughs) you know we can actually envision a better world we have envisioned a better world we have all envisioned a better world at some point as a connected living breathing organism We can envision shit into being, you know, because once we start thinking about it, our systems get to work making it real.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're more, we're so much more powerful than we've been led to believe by... The people that we've kind of given power through this weird mutually shared delusional agreement. I think that people are starting to wake up to how powerful they are. It's just that when so much is stacked against us, it's really hard to imagine that our way out of it. Even if you know that, like, I'm a powerful person, I can make shit happen. But when you've got sort of layers of social conditioning and a huge system that wants you to forget at every possible moment that you are a powerful being, then... You get kind of stuck in this, like, you know, place of dispowerment and feeling like you really can't make a difference, but you can. When I think of the people we're having on this pod and, you know, some of the interviews that we still have to come, like, if if nothing else, I hope, like, even one person can hear it and be like, wow, that's fucking awesome that that person is doing this with their life. Maybe I can do something awesome with my life, too.
0: We're all trying to... To claim our power right now I think in this world and in this country right now and I think what we're seeing is a lot like what Eleanor was speaking to is there are a lot of voices that are intentionally silenced right now and a lot of powerful people who are being intentionally cracked down upon because uh, because they're loud and because they're powerful you know when when I see all of that happening and you know I see where the areas that I have power that I'm not using you know it's part of exercising our privilege I think is knowing where we have power and knowing where other people's power is being intentionally crushed is I think one of the things that has been coming out for me over the past you know I would say several months since we've been dealing with this pandemic and and uh all of these protests of various oppressions
1: yeah this is a tweet i really loved that eleanor had just around the time we were setting up the interview and i was like checking out her twitter was it's not about overthrowing the government it's about making the government obsolete and I think that that yeah. then brings up the question, well, then what f- happens after we make the governor obsolete? Who is? Um,
0: relevant, I guess. Relevant, yeah.
1: Um, um, and it's us, uh, you know, it's it's the people. And those are all big, vague ideas, but you have to start with knowing that that's possible to get to those places. And everything that we've done so far as a species started with somebody's big idea. So, fuck yeah, that's how we get there. yeah.
0: And it's not only started as somebody's big idea, but somebody bringing their big idea to other people and realizing that it wasn't actually necessarily new and that other people had had that idea or were on their way to that idea. And, you know, it's it's the interaction of ideas. And I think the reason why there's so much crackdown happening around communications platforms like Twitter and tiktok and facebook and all its different machinations is because when we're communicating with one another about our ideas those communications are power like a meme can spread so quickly and all of a sudden an idea that was popular in a few different you know circles before is mainstream within a day you know we're i think we're learning the power of communication and not only the power of communication but the power of um levity and you know humor and communication and and uh, you know irony sarcasm you know it's it's really the i think the language of of our generation and subsequent generations is much, uh, much less outright indignant than the previous ones and much more like fucking, yeah, we know now let's fix it. Asshole. (laughs) And I think
1: when you kind of make fun of something, you take away its power. A lot.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's why when I was out on the line, Of people in Portland last week and you know I was not feeling particularly uh, you know fun or funny or anything like that but I was able to at one point look at this line of mostly men maybe there were a couple of women in there but they were all you know dressed in all the gear the riot gear um, on the you know federal, the federal protective services line and all I could think was you know, with and, and all I could say to them was, you know without all that gear you would just be that guy hitting on me in the bar and I would be like no thank you and um, I guess to me that was as funny as I could be at the time <laughs> but it was, it really is it's just And I don't even know if that's relevant, but...
1: Well, you were kind of taking away the image of it as this insurmountable, powerful, faceless thing and bringing it down to a level that you can engage with it, which I think is what humor does. Or, you know, when Eleanor was talking about art and, like, people saying, well, what, you really think art's going to change the world? She's like, "Um, you know... Her answer to that was so great because probably not on its own but is anything going to change the world on its own but also what art can do whether it's the art of humor or you know the art that like Eleanor does or that you do it's like it helps people think differently about um, the reality they're living in and the sort of you know day-to-day routine kind of Um, hard scrabble that capitalism has kind of put us all into like anything that helps you break out of that even if it's just for like an hour is I think really valuable and is something that you know the powers that be would rather not have you do because they would rather have you not creating those spaces where you can start to push back and kind of you know those little counter hegemonic things that you can do where you start to make space around the thing that seems like it can't be moved you start realizing that actually there's a lot of holes. And you can yeah. just kind of start picking at those holes.
0: Right. You know? Exactly. The boxes that we've been given to put our life experiences in are full of holes. And it's on us to sort of break out of those boxes and look around and you know, decide how reality actually is. Uh, you know, decide how scared we need to be of a new structure that does not look like the one that we currently live under. It's, you know, just... I was, uh, I was reading... I think it was in this book that Crystal Bowls gave me when I was at her house that has been on fucking point um, every day. It had to do with the, the chick breaking out of the egg and having to, you know, essentially destroy its entire world. And as that world is crumbling around it, it's, uh, it's opening its eyes and seeing that it's now actually in the world. (laughs) And I feel like that's what we are trying to do socially, culturally in this in this time, we're trying to, as, a, as humanity, break out of this fucking eggshell that has been maybe nourishing us for a while, but now it's time to break the fuck out of it and enter the world where we don't need that shell anymore. If we ever, you know, I think the difference with the chick is that it actually needed that shell. I don't think we ever needed capitalism.
1: I mean, who knows? Maybe on some big timeline looking back later, it'll all make sense. But, you know, it certainly seems like right now. I don't know. Sometimes I play around with that idea when I'm in super high-minded stoner brain. I'm like, what if this is like, you know, when you go through really hard shit and then like a couple years later you're like damn now I see why I had to date that shitty guy or I had to do this like it brought me here like maybe that's what this stage of humanity is it's like oh now I see why I I had to do that crazy thing where I believed money was real and I almost destroyed the only planet that can support me that I know of for sure in the universe like that was pretty wild but hey I got out (laughs) the other side and look look at me now um exactly
0: Yeah. Some future generation is going to look back like that, you know, ideally, as long as humanity manages to survive. I think that one of the biggest things that I got from our conversation with Eleanor, and that honestly that I've gotten from all our conversations with everyone that we've had, is just how much I don't know about the history of The people in this country that we live in, you know, uh, this so-called country, the so-called nation uh, and all this occupied stolen land is we just don't know so much and we think we know so much. One of the greatest weapons that we have in um, this this next phase uh, of getting beaten back by this system is education and not academic education, but just knowing our people's education. Uh, I don't know. I would love to see some kind of network between like old people in all of the, all of the parts of the country where it's just like ask an old person because there's a lot of old ass people in this country who know a lot of shit. And they're just waiting to be asked,
1: <laughs> right? And I mean, we have so many ways to capture that now, and preserve it. So yeah, like guerrilla history, like reclaiming our history, that is. Uh, that could be a fun art project for somebody. Well, not even art, I guess, but
0: yeah, history or a documentation project. It could be, you know, I mean, the the, the Library of Congress saves what it wants to save but we all have the technology now to be saving our own histories we can all we can all take our phones to our family gatherings and talk to our relatives and record each other's histories that kind of history passing has really intentionally been crushed by capitalism it does not benefit from it
1: You know, it's interesting, as you mentioned, well, you mentioned the Library of Congress, but thinking about libraries, I participated in a really cool project at the academic library that I work at. We did this thing called the Living Library, and other libraries have done this where you can check out a person that's like a book, and the person has their story, and they tell you their story, and then you can ask them questions. So um, my book was all about having obsessive compulsive disorder, what I did to manage it, how I found out I had it. Um, Because I think talking about mental health, especially something that isn't as, you know, as OCD kind of isn't well understood by a lot of people. So I thought it would be a valuable thing to contribute to that project. But, you know, like we had students, we had a lot of international students. We had students talking about like what experience it was like to, you know, be a person of color on a campus that's very like white and, you know, Colorado campus. You know we had just like all different kinds of people all different ages some um, other librarians participated and it was really a cool project and I know other libraries have done that but I think that just that power of being able to tell your story even if it's just you know OCD is not the only part of my story but it was cool to be able to tell that story and reclaim it as a, sort of a self-empowering experience and hopefully something that can help other people if they heard about it And I think that that was, you know, kind of another thing I got from Eleanor's interview was just the power of telling our story is so important. And that, again, goes back to the whole idea of, you know, art and kind of trying to push outside the box and create something is like we all have our story to tell. So trying to find that story and what does that say about our humanity beyond, you know, our productivity and the money we make for the man, like what... Exactly. What do we have to tell? We
0: all have stories, and I think that has been one of the things that has, honestly, over the last few years, listening to other people tell their stories, either in person or on podcasts, like I love the Risk podcast, um, is a really excellent storytelling podcast and um, body storytelling also is a great one, but just people telling their real ass stories of being real ass people living real ass life and that, that in and of itself, I feel like if we can remain stream that act of just telling each other's stories and having the attention span to listen to each other's stories then we connect so much better than if we assume we know each other's stories or if we assume that we all get the same thing out of our experiences. The main thing that always resonates with me when I listen to someone's story is listening to what they got out of that experience that they just told me about.
1: And there's something really powerful... Having been on the other side of that, just even about the experience of getting to tell your story and kind of getting to own it and make it yours, you know, so much of living in this country feels just like a series of shit that's happening to you, where you don't really have a lot of agency or control. Um, so, being able to take back some of that agency or control through the process of creation is, I think, a really important and powerful step towards, you know, our collective liberation.
2: Dumbed down, unused, left behind Is your free, have you wasted